Perspiration is our body's way of cooling us down when the temperature of our environment is too hot for us to otherwise efficiently endure to continue functioning. This is something that most mammals do, and it's not the only method of thermoregulation of adjusting an entity's temperature available. Plenty of other animals take other approaches to solving the same problem when there's a mismatch between what their innards can survive and at what temperature they optimally function and the reality of the temperature around them. But we're actually pretty decent at this method, all things considered. We have two different types of glands that produce sweat, and perspiration is just another word for sweating. And these sweat glands are automagically activated when we are in environments that are a bit too hot for our body's comfort. And I say that we're pretty good at this because we are one of the relative few, alongside horses and moles, that don't have our sweat glands and hair follicles connected, which, it turns out, has allowed us to evolve the ability to produce comparatively massive amounts of sweat when warranted. Sweat is, in some cases, a little socially awkward, and because of the bacteria we have tucked away in some of our cavities and folds, it can sometimes seem to smell. Sweat itself is odorless, but that bacteria being flooded out of its skin home is what tends to give generalized body odor its individually distinct fragrance. And sweat is associated with other things like nervousness and physical exertion, exercise, and such. And with the floods of hormones that can knock our thermoregulatory systems and the systems connected to those systems temporarily out of whack. In general, though, sweating is a positive thing because it is part of what allows us to survive a wider range of temperatures than we would otherwise be able to manage. The mechanism through which sweat helps us do this is fairly simple. Sweat is mostly water, and that water rises to the surface of our bodies, to our skin, and it pulls heat with it as it does so. And this process is mostly moderated by our core temperature which is why you can sometimes have very warm skin and still not be sweating. Your core might still be cool enough that your hypothalamus has not been triggered yet. So that water from inside your body carries heat from inside your body to the surface of your body, to your skin. And that water then evaporates, which means it's pulled into the air via the same mechanism that causes water on the ground which takes the shape of dew on grass, for instance, to evaporate into the air once the sun shines down on it hot enough. That heat goes into the air with the water, and thus, over time, the body is able to move that heat outward from inside the body to outside the body, and then into the environment, into the air. It's a pretty neat trick, and it works fairly well most of the time, even if it is, again, sometimes a little gross-seeming or inconvenient. Typically, when we measure environmental temperature, we use what's called the dry bulb. 
temperature. That's the measurement of the temperature of the air in a given space using a thermometer that is protected from radiation and moisture, but otherwise directly exposed to the air. This is considered to be the true temperature in the sense that it is unaltered by other environmental variables, and this is typically what you'll get when you're given a temperature reading in Fahrenheit, Celsius, or Kelvin. Wet bulb temperature, on the other hand, is measured by cloaking a normal thermometer with a cloth that has been soaked in water, and then you typically blow some air over the thermometer with its cloak to get a reading. When the humidity of the air is at 100%, which means the air cannot absorb, cannot hold any more water, the water cannot dissolve into that air around you any further, which often then leads to rain when the air is supersaturated with moisture, when there's more than 100% humidity. But when there is 100% humidity, the wet bulb reading will be the same as the dry bulb reading. So if you had a wet bulb and a dry bulb thermometer, each sitting right next to the other, on a humid day, they would read about the same. Whereas if it's a drier day, less than 100% humidity, the wet bulb thermometer will display a lower temperature because of the same mechanism that allows us to cool our bodies through sweating. So some of its heat on that thermometer will evaporate into the air because of that wet cloth in which it is wrapped. The water in the cloth does essentially what sweat does for us for that thermometer. What this means in practice is that the wet bulb temperature represents something close to the lowest temperature it is possible to reach in a given location for things that can sweat, because it's kind of sort of sweating itself, and that tells us, for instance, if the dry bulb thermometer reads 90 but the wet bulb thermometer reads, let's say for illustrative purposes, 85. Most people who are able to sweat normally in that area because of the environmental conditions, including the humidity level of the air, will probably be able to regulate their temperatures to something closer to 85 because of their body's built-in sweating mechanisms. Now, this is a useful measurement for many purposes, but it can also be moderately terrifying in some circumstances, especially in regions that can experience high temperatures at the same time as they experience very high levels of humidity. Because the implication is that if you are in an area where the temperature is 90 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 32 degrees Celsius, and the humidity is 100%, so the wet bulb temperature reads 90, the same as the dry bulb temperature, your thermoregulatory system, your sweating mechanisms, will not work the way that they are supposed to. And that means that your ability to survive certain environments and certain temperatures is significantly altered to the point where even people who have lived their whole lives in hot climates and who are thus able to survive quite a bit in that regard might be unable to function and could even die, even in high but typically relatively low-seeming and survivable temperatures. What I'd like to talk about today is extreme heat, how the world is coping with an increase of high heat disseminating climate patterns, and what this might mean for how we live and where we live in the future. Music 
listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Verge, and it's entitled Why 2021's Heat Waves Are So Brutal. There's a relatively recently made meme going around as I record this episode that has Bart Simpson from The Simpsons cartoon in the top frame next to a thermo-reading satellite image of the northwestern portion of North America showing record high temperatures and incredible hot spots. And his caption says, This is the hottest summer of my life. And then down below that, in the second frame, Homer Simpson, his dad, is explaining to him in a lesson-from-dad sort of way, quote, This is the coldest summer of the rest of your life, end quote. This is just a new application of an existing truism within the climate-watching community that has thus far been more than supported by the data and the lived experiences of people who live in regions that are especially impacted by weather patterns stirred up and amplified by larger-scale climactic shifts. But it's a fairly brutal, if still kind of funny, application of that concept, because for all that recent heatwave-related events have been tragic for some, and almost comically uncomfortable for others, there's reason to believe that, still allowing for fluctuations year to year, unless something dramatic changes in the near future, this will, in fact, be not just the new normal, but a new baseline for the new normal. Things will likely only get hotter during the summer from here on out. So those of us who are like, wow, this is so weird and borderline unsurvivable, have still worse to look forward to over the course of the next several decades, which is alarming and astonishing and almost too horrible to think about. And that's part of why I think memes like this one, can be effective at communicating this sort of concept. It's a big-picture idea that requires we look far into the future, but it's also entangled with our current lived reality. And this type of delivery vehicle makes that current entanglement more clear. Consider the possibility that these extreme temperatures are what we can expect pretty much every year from here on out. Then consider that these extreme temperatures may be the floor, not the ceiling, of such temperature fluctuations in the coming years. Consider that each year might in various ways be worse than the last, climactically, again allowing for normal fluctuations that may result in somewhat cooler temperatures some years, but which otherwise doesn't change that overarching big-picture pattern. And consider what that might mean for how we do things, where we choose to live as individuals but also as societies, where we settle, where we build, where we can survive, and what cities in regions with these sorts of extremes on a regular basis will have to do if they want to stick around. Consider how our societies might have to change to account for these new extremes compared to what we've pretty much always enjoyed throughout all of human history with our anthro-friendly weather and climate patterns, and how we might even find that portions of the planet become borderline or completely unlivable 
which, being highly adaptive creatures, is not something that we have to face very often, but which we might have to face more frequently as those patterns continue to shift, resulting in more extremes and more deadly environmental variables in places that were previously mostly just fine, if periodically stricken with high heat moments or disasters like hurricanes or floods, that were nonetheless survivable and that we fairly easily bounced back from on a regular basis. That is the cheerful note with which I want to introduce some concepts today, and I'd like to encourage, to the best of your ability, that you try to look at these ideas not just as interesting facts, and they are that, but they are also things that will very likely impact most of us in countless predictable and unpredictable ways in the coming decades, but also in the very near future. And in some cases, they are already impacting us in ways that will likely require a good amount of recalibration and rebuilding of tangible and intangible infrastructure that no longer makes sense or doesn't make as much sense in the world that we are moving toward as they did in the world that we're moving away from or which quite possibly in some areas already no longer exists. That piece in The Verge, does a pretty good job of explaining why some of these current-day extreme weather events become so extreme so relatively quickly, and why heat waves, in particular, can be so seemingly focused on one particular area, despite being less so, less dramatic and damaging in nearby locales. One important concept that it introduces, and which is good to understand, if you want to understand this bigger concept, is what's called a heat dome. The atmosphere surrounding our planet creates downward pressure on the air closer in toward the ground than it does up towards space. These pressure systems fluctuate, though. They move around, and that influences all sorts of things down closer to Earth, including what we experience as weather. In some cases, these pressure systems behave sort of like a pressure cooker, which is a device that creates a high-pressure space, compressing the air inside, which then allows the food inside that space to cook faster. And it's not vital to know in detail precisely why that happens, but the superficial explanation is that the boiling point of water increases when the air in which that water exists is under higher pressure. So rather than the water evaporating, as per usual, the water can be superheated, and everything gets hotter faster, and that heat tends to be longer-lasting, also because of that lack of evaporation. Now, that's not the whole story, but the most important takeaway is that higher pressure tends to equal greater heat and greater heat retention. Thus, when a region is encapsulated by a high-pressure atmospheric system, the air under that pressure dome, under the bowl-shaped expanse of a high-pressure atmospheric system, is pressed down, and a similar sort of effect takes place. There is less potential for evaporation, heat just kind of sits there, and things get hotter and hotter because of the lack of energetic flow and dissemination that would typically help regulate things, spreading that heat out more broadly. 
Remember how I mentioned in the intro that people can overheat a lot more easily when the humidity in their environment is higher? Because the sweat their bodies typically pushes to the surface from their core can no longer cool them as efficiently because there's less or in some cases no evaporation happening because the air is already saturated with water. A similar concept applies here. No evaporation or significantly less evaporation for a city or region means that the city or region is not able to sweat its heat away into the atmosphere as it typically would. So that heat just kind of sits there and sits there and sits there and that keeps things hot, but it also often creates a cascade effect that causes the heat to increase still further because it's unable to decrease and because it's unable to spread around into the atmosphere and surrounding areas. On top of that ground level effect, the hotter it gets down closer to Earth, the denser and more pressurized that high-pressure system up in the atmosphere tends to get, which creates another feedback loop that can result in long-lasting heat domes that are also quite potent. Now, to be clear, this is a natural phenomena. Heat domes happen around the world in some places more than others, but they've happened throughout history. Many cultures have adapted their architecture and traditions and pretty much everything else to account for these sorts of systems. Heat domes are not an asteroid that just hit the planet out of nowhere. They are part of how our planet-scale ecosystem functions. That said, there is a great deal of evidence that heat domes, alongside other sorts of human-unfriendly climate and weather events, are becoming more potent with time. The data that we have on them shows that their longevity and range of impact and strength line up with the amount of greenhouse gases we've churned into the atmosphere. So again, although there will almost certainly continue to be fluctuations over time, and although there's still a lot of data that we don't have yet and a lot that we don't know, everything that we do know points at these being climactic effects that we have amplified by doing things the way that we've done things these past several hundred years, and that there's a good chance they will continue to get worse as the human-changed atmosphere situation also continues to get worse. This particular Verge piece was written right before a recent string of heat dome-catalyzed heat waves that have since sprawled across the planet, though perhaps most impactfully across parts of North America. And I say that not to imply a differing importance in the damage caused between regions. I say that mostly because many of the other regions that have experienced such heat domes this year are more historically accustomed to them. So even though they faced worse versions of these events than usual, they were also more prepared and knew what to expect, even if it still sucked a great deal for those people living through it and in some cases caused a lot of damage and death. In places like Portland and Seattle and Vancouver, though, temperatures broke all kinds of records, knocking the local mercury all the way up to shocking triple-digit figures, setting a new record of 121.3 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 49.6 degrees Celsius in Canada, and just destroying various aspects of the environment and infrastructure as a consequence. 
It's estimated that more than a billion seashore-dwelling animals may have been cooked to death in British Columbia. As of the day I'm recording this, there are still a few hundred wildfires raging across other parts of Canada. About 30% of Mount Rainier's ice pack in Seattle melted in just four days, which has never happened before. Roads across the American Pacific Northwest are buckling. They are melting due to the extreme heat. Hundreds, potentially thousands of people, have died in these regions alone of heat-related ailments and already strained medical infrastructure, in some cases, is being pushed still further by the combination of pandemic-related issues and these surging heat-related issues. And again, part of why the destruction in these sorts of locations has been particularly bad is that they don't typically get anywhere close to this kind of heat, even in the dead of summer. Most buildings in these areas do not have air conditioning, and they're built to keep heat in because of their sometimes extreme winters rather than keeping heat out. These are generally cooler areas, and thus they do not have the right infrastructure to safely cope with this kind of heat wave. Consequently, city officials are being forced to figure out if they need to make the necessary investments to add air conditioning to their hospitals, and individual people are trying to figure out if they can survive another summer, like this one, next year, and if so, what kinds of changes they'll need to make to their homes or to their rental agreements to ensure that they can not even necessarily be terribly comfortable, but just survive unharmed another wave that could be coming as soon as this year, or next year, or the year after that. The climate models that we are working from currently have long indicated that this sort of thing was a possibility. This type of shift toward more heat overall, but also more heat wave events. But because of the investments that would be necessary to stave off such changes and to prepare ourselves to face them, most politicians, and frankly most of us individuals as well, have kind of been content to keep kicking the can down the road on this issue, deciding to worry about it later when it becomes a more real, tangible, everyday concern, rather than making investments now and risking that maybe it will not be as bad as predicted, and that we will then look and feel like fools for spending all that money on something that ended up being nothing. Unfortunately, these sorts of heat-related climactic shifts, alongside other sorts of extreme weather and climate events that we've experienced over the past few years, have actually already exceeded the worst-case climate models that we've developed. In other words, many of the dire predictions from scientists collecting and analyzing this data might actually have not been dire enough, which is an issue for many reasons, but especially because we already didn't want to address this when things seemed less dire. And there's a chance that we will be even more prone to head-in-the-sand style denial behavior when the estimates are brought up to date with this more recent data, and we're able to get a sense of the full range of horribleness that we can expect over the next few decades, and even the next few years. I am aware, as I say this, that I run the risk of triggering exactly that kind of ostrich-like behavior, of looking around and feeling 
justifiably worried about what's going on. But then rather than accepting that worry and allowing it to inform our future actions and decisions, that we might choose instead to either make these sorts of adjustments someday in the undefined, unplanned future, further kick that can down the road, or to just deny it, because it's difficult to imagine substantial changes to our environments. It's not something that we're great at, because a lot of what will change are things that we can't possibly imagine yet, especially not on that scale, so it seems pointless to do so through some lenses. But it's also just a very unpleasant thought, and it's a lot easier to just not accept it than to deal with the psychic cost of making it a component of how we view reality and our future. Even though that type of triggering is possible, however, I think it's important to say as clearly as possible that there is a good chance that this is not only the new normal, that it is in fact a set of circumstances that we will look back on maybe 10 years from now and think, wow, wasn't it great when it was only 120 degrees in the Pacific Northwest over the summer? And on top of that, wasn't it nice when hurricanes only destroyed one city at a time and when ticks were only in that one portion of the country rather than feeding across the whole expanse of it? Wasn't it nice when we only had one pandemic at a time to worry about and when everything from how we build our homes to how we travel and the work we do and the way we date and everything else about our lives wasn't so inextricably intertwined with what we used to brush off as a casual, easy, unconfrontational conversation topic. The weather and the climate that shapes the weather. The wheels are in motion after a very sluggish start, and despite all the dire prognostications I just shared with you, I'm personally optimistic about our chances of not just making things survivable, despite everything, but actually making things better. The start was sluggish, but even our creaky, not-optimized-for-long-term thinking and planning governmental models might finally be getting with the picture on this, and the economic entities upon which we and those governments rely upon for so much have likewise done the math and have begun their own ponderous pivot towards something somewhat different. It's still easy to miss if you're not consciously and specifically looking for this stuff, but the tone of the conversation has changed dramatically enough that there's a good chance solutions are in fact impending, even if it likely won't be a pleasant journey to whatever new normal we will eventually have to establish at some point, hopefully not too far into this relatively unguided, accidentally amplified, climactically shaped new normal that we are already in the midst of today. Hopefully, it is a relatively short period of change, lasting mere decades rather than a century or more. But we'll see. We are still very new at this as a species, and though we can learn a great deal from some of our predecessors and our contemporary fellow humans who have managed to survive environmental tumult of a similar nature, if not at the same scale and potency, a whole lot of what we do will be experimental at best, theoretical less ideally, and in some cases will be more like triage than the more optimal preventative care. 
Eventually, though, after wading through a whole lot of new records and shifts to our collective Overton windows, our sense of what is possible and likely and thinkable and what's not, we'll be able to refocus some of our attention on that more preventative approach, on rebalancing how we do things so that we can survive and thrive even when our planet throws us curveballs, or as seems to be increasingly the case today, when it upends a whole ball pit over our heads. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer by Siddhartha Mukherjee. This is rightly, I believe, one of those very well-known and very well-regarded books that I'm only just now getting around to years after it came out. But if you likewise hadn't read this book, despite the fact that it was so well-promoted, again, I think rightly, when it first came out, it's definitely worth a read if you are curious about the history of cancer and cancer research and cancer treatment. And the author, who is a doctor and expert on the subject, writes about it beautifully in a way that I think any fan of history or perhaps even medical nonfiction will enjoy. But there's also a really nice set of personal entanglements for him and his own personal experiences and entwinement with the concept as well, which makes a lot of what he has to say stick but also helps make this a beautiful read at times, in addition to being a very informative one. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can sign up to receive a daily email from me in which I summarize the news at onesentencenews.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright. And I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.